0: Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, I want you to join me again as we continue a journey through the book of Jeremiah. Today is a restart of a journey we started last year. I want you to find the Old Testament prophecy of Jeremiah. Whether you're looking in a printed copy, as I prefer, or you use your device and have an app, whether you're watching online or you're here with us live, I want you to find the book of Jeremiah, and when you find the book of Jeremiah, I want you to find the 11th chapter. So many folks have graced us with their presence over the last few months. We've seen a continual flow of first-time guests and I always take a brief opportunity to explain to you why we do what I am about to do with you this morning. We believe that God's word is inerrant, meaning there is no error in it. We believe it's infallible, it's perfect and preserved. And we believe that God speaks now through his spoken word, which is the scripture. So we have a very high view of the Bible. Now, if we believe that, and many churches like ours do, then we must submit to the Bible in all that we do. In order to submit to the Bible in all that we do, we must take the most important moment of our worship and make sure it falls underneath the authority of the Bible the most important part of the opportunity to hear from God is about to begin. If you think about it, the first half of our worship time each week is us letting the Lord hear us. When we praise Him, we bring glory and honor to Him. Now, we're ministered to as well. I know I have been, and I hope you have been. But now, we switch gears. The worship doesn't discontinue. The worship doesn't start. We now worship through hearing God's Word. But there's no way that an individual, a human being, a sinner saved by grace, your pastor, can stand up here and proclaim to you God's Word without using God's Word. And so what we do at Church at the Mill is that we take God's Word systematically and we walk through it. The bread and butter of our preaching ministry is to take books of the Bible and to unpack them and to apply them to our lives. Because as I so often remind you, the authority in the preaching event is not the platform, the pastor, the preacher, or the position. It's not the prominence or the personality of the person put on stage. And yes, that's a lot of peace. The authority in the preaching event is the Word. And so, as we dive back into the book of Jeremiah this morning, we continue doing what we always do walking through books of the Bible, verse by verse, to make sure that we milk all of God's word of its nourishment for our lives. Now, with that background, I want to give you the opening thoughts for chapter 11. We're going to begin a sermon series called Blessed to Broken. Have you ever come upon a tragedy? Perhaps you're driving along and all of a sudden traffic just stops. And immediately you know it's not a traffic jam, rather you observe that it's a wreck. You you may see the lights down the road from you. you. You may see that certain lanes are wide open. Emergency personnel may come by you at a high rate of speed on the shoulder of the road. And one of the things that happens when you realize something bad has taken place is that you have the human emotion that we all experience. What happened? Uh, A few weeks ago, back in December before Christmas, my son and one of his friends and I, we left early, early one morning to drive down to my home state of Alabama to hunt for a few days. And we left my home early because I want to hit Atlanta early before rush hour. So we left out well before daylight and I was cruising through Atlanta early in the morning and all of a sudden I noticed that the uh, opposite side of the interstate, I was on 85 coming into Atlanta, so 85 north, if you will, was completely empty, completely empty, totally empty of any cars. That's not a possibility in Atlanta. Quite frankly, that's not a possibility on Reedville Road now, any time of the day. And I realized something morbid has taken place. And then I began to see emergency personnel. And all six, not two, not four, all six lanes of 85 North were at a screeching halt early in the morning. I'm talking 6 a.m. It was very cold, and there was one car crushed into pieces. And sadly, there was a white sheet covering a body. They had closed the entire interstate because of this fatality. And I understand And as I drove by on my way, I couldn't help but think, what happened to this person? Here I am with my son and his friend, and we're excited to have a few days in the woods and looking forward to the holidays and God has been so faithful and yet that person's life ended that day. And I'll be honest with you, the boys were asleep, I was by myself in the truck with my thoughts. I thought about that wreck longer than I've probably ever thought about a wreck of someone I had no idea about because I wanted to know what happened to cause this single car fatality. What took place? When someone goes from a place of just going through their normal day to all of a sudden tragedy strikes, what happens when we see a car wreck spiritually? What takes place in a person or a people's lives when they go from a place of being blessed by God to being completely broken? The message of the church, the message of hope and encouragement, the message that I believe with all my heart is that no matter how broken you are, you can be restored by the Lord. This is the hope of the gospel. But God in his grace has also given us the opposite account. He's given us books like the book of Jeremiah that shows us a people who were blessed in a bountiful way and yet ended up broken and destroyed. Now, why would God preserve that in his word? I don't think that the Lord, according to the testimony of Scripture, is a fear monger. God is not interested in just intimidating us so that we run from him in fear. In fact, we sang a few moments ago that the call of the gospel is to come to the Father, to run to his grace. But why would God, in his grace, give us an account of a prophetic word like the book of Jeremiah, which truly shows us something? Why do we need a prophetic word? Why did Jeremiah need a prophetic word? Well, it's been a long time since many of us can say we've experienced revival. I don't know about you, but it seems like society and the basic tenets of society seem to be crumbling around us. There are many people scratching their heads socially, politically, economically, and saying, we don't, we don't know what to do. We've all heard that medically and biologically from the medical community in dealing with COVID-19. We, we don't know what precautions to take. We, we don't know how to predict the mutations. We we just don't know how quickly it will be until everyone can be vaccinated who wishes to be vaccinated. We don't know. We get a lot of we don't knows in our headlines. Many people don't understand our Past. They don't know where we've come from. And there are some who would say, I don't know that I have hope for the future. Now, I don't know about you, but as familiar as this sounds, this is exactly what Jeremiah was dealing with. In fact, I want to remind you of the prophet of Jeremiah. He ministered for about 40 years from 627 to 584 B.C. Now, I think it's so important for the pastor to do his best to help people understand where we are in the Word because where we are in the Word dictates how we understand what the Word is saying. It's about interpreting the Bible in its context. The best way would be a simple biblical outline. You may remember this from several months ago. Let me just show you how the biblical story works. We began, of course, in creation. You'll see the green tree on the left-hand side of the screen. And then there are the patriarchs, men like Abraham. And then the last one, of course, Moses, who led the Exodus out of Egypt. And then they took the promised land that God had promised them. Remember that. We'll reference that in just a moment. And they, they conquered it. And they were ruled for a time by judges. These are the times of people like Samson and Esther. And then they begged for a king, and kingdoms were established. Even though God said, an earthly king is going to fail you, there's only going to be one king that I'll send who will truly fulfill everything a king should fulfill. But you can have your earthly kings. And, of course, the first king of Israel was King Saul. And then his son David. And then his son Solomon. And David's son Solomon saw his kingdom divide in civil war, a coup, the northern kingdom called Israel, and the southern kingdom called Judah. And in the midst of this breakup, the northern kingdom falls in the 700s B.C. But the southern kingdom hangs on until King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, marches on Jerusalem and destroys the southern kingdom of Judah Israel, and the city of Jerusalem, and the temple in 586 B.C. At that point, the people of God are marched off into exile as judgment from God for their disobedience. Now, if you'll look at the blue arrow, that is about here on the timeline. And this is where Jeremiah was called to prophesy. Jeremiah's job was to go to the people of God and say, time's up. To prophesy against the sins of the people and to say that God is bringing judgment in the form of the Babylonians. Now, the full picture is important. We know that God preserved some faithful in the exile, that later they're allowed to return to Jerusalem. Men like Nehemiah rebuilt the wall, men like Ezra rebuilt the altar. It's all right there in your scriptures. And then after the return, there's 400 years of silence from Malachi to Matthew. And then a baby is born in Bethlehem. Jesus comes and lives and dies and resurrects, and the church is born, given the mission, and now we wait for the return of Christ. This is the redemptive story of God. And what you find is that no matter where you insert your study, whether you study it way back in Genesis at the creation, or you choose to study the future in Revelation or anywhere in between, you'll find God's truth does not change. What does he want? He wants to bless his people. He wants to bless them. And he pursues us for relationship. So what happens when a blessed people end up broken? This is the story of Jeremiah chapter 11. First, I want you to see, just in a matter of division, the blessing first, the blessing of the covenant. Look at Jeremiah chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. we heard this before. Jeremiah's received this from the Lord. Hear the words of this covenant. Grab that word, underline it, circle it, highlight it on your app, and speak to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. You shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. And then a pretty hard word comes. I want you to think about the word cursed, contrasted with the word covenant. Cursed be the man who does not hear the words of this covenant that I command you, commanded your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. Remember, I just explained that timeline. From the iron furnace saying, listen to my voice and do all that I command you, so shall you be my people and I will be your God, my people, your God. Verse 5, that I may confirm the oath that I swore to your fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as at this day, then I answer. Jeremiah says, so be it, Lord, I will remind them. One of the ways we see the grace of God is that God never shows up to pronounce punishment without reminding his people that he has been more than gracious and more than patient for many, many, many years. The scriptures speak of this covenant. Way back in the book of Deuteronomy, God issued this covenant. Deuteronomy 29, verse 1 and then verse 9. These are the words of the covenant. If you like language, grab this. The covenant is never in the plural. Never in the Bible is it covenants. God's not a God of confusion. He's not an author of confusion, the scripture would say. It's not like there's this one and that one and this one and that one. In other words, God's not the IRS. He's very clear as to his expectations. There is an irony in that. So when we think about the covenant, there's one covenant. It's outlined in Deuteronomy 29. The Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel. Therefore, keep the words of this covenant and do them that you may prosper in all that you do. So God built in stipulations. You obey and follow me, and I will bless you. I I, I don't want to sound too simplistic, but it's that simple. You obey and follow me with all of your heart. And I will in turn bless you and provide for you. And then God adds this intimacy to it. He says, we read it in the text in Jeremiah chapter 11, beginning in verse uh, 4, second phrase, so shall you be my people and I will be your God. It's never in the plural. It's initiated by God. It's exclusive. It's intimate. And it revolves around relationships. Think about it in the way God used it. One of the terms that God used to describe the covenant is the term of a groom with a bride. In my life, it has been so enriched by many, many women. Some of my earliest memories are women caring for me, beginning, of course, with my mother, who will be in the second service today. And I think about my earliest memories of some of my Sunday school teachers who loved me, who disciplined me, who disciplined me, who disciplined me, who disciplined me and loved me, and you know, if you can't sit still or be quiet in church, you go into ministry. So the thing is, what what I remember though are these incredible women. My life has been so enriched by women. Statistically, half this church are made up of incredible women. So many of the ministries that happen here are because of our ladies and their giftedness and their leadership abilities and their ability with the word and their ability with ministry. And so there are many, many, many women in my life who have made it quite rich. And some of the most devoted followers of Jesus in my life, I would describe as sisters in the Lord. But there's only one woman who's mine. And I don't mean that in a derogatory or chauvinistic way, though I could care less what the world says about that. She's mine. She gave herself to me at an altar 20 years ago. Now, I gave myself to her as well. So there is an exclusive, intimate relationship with my bride. That's the language God used with his people. He said, Look, I'm entering into a covenant with you. And this covenant is going to be characterized by me pursuing you, initiating blessing, and asking for your complete and total loyalty. And by the way, this loyalty meant that God's people, here specifically Israel, couldn't step out on God. There was no option to worship other gods. There's no option to be politically correct in some ecumenical soup and sort of add to your religious beliefs the religions around you. In fact, what is the basis of the law? You may have heard it before called the Shema, the Hebrew word Shema, means hear, hear, O Israel. The Lord your God is one. There is one God, and you, O Israel, shall have no other gods before you. Ten commandments, commandment one. Have no gods. Other gods before you. So we have this picture of this beautiful, wonderful covenant between God and these nomadic rather insignificant people that he births out of a man whose wife was barren, Abraham. And he says, I will bless you and I'm gonna give you a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, Jeremiah would have delivered this to a group of people who had experienced the land flowing with milk and honey. These were not people hoping for the promised land. These were the ancestors of those who conquered and received the promised land. It is a good thing, application, drop it in, watch this. Anytime I stray from God, the beginning is never a decision to disobey. It's always failing to appreciate how good he's been to me. Anytime disobedience comes into my life, whether it be behavior or heart attitude, when I look at it, when I do an autopsy of my sin when I've done something that's wrong, when I've said something that's wrong, when I've hurt a relationship, when I've grown sour in an attitude, when I've missed God on something, and I take a step back and I say, what happened, introduction, what happened here? One of the first things I recognize is that long before the disobedience came, long before the attitude turned sour, long before I became a little selfish or a little moody or a little bitter, a little angry, a little lustful, a little hot-tempered, whatever it was, long before that happened, I stopped appreciating how good he'd been to me. I failed to see his pursuit of me. Don't you think it's interesting that every time God delivers a prophet to deliver bad news, He starts by reminding the prophet to remind the people of how good he had been in the beginning. It should create within us a desire to consistently remind ourselves to count our blessings, to take a step back and to remember how good God has been to us. You may be dealing with the most difficult season of your life. I have friends who in the last month have lost people to this terrible, tragic, ugly virus. There are others I know whose business is on the brink of going under due to the ramifications economically in our area. Many people feel disenfranchised and disheartened by the continual assault on the unborn by the current administration. And there are others who are struggling with the amount of racial tension that seems to have bubbled up over the last eight months, even as we enter into a month where we gladly celebrate the contributions of incredible African Americans into the black history of this nation. And so we have all these things coming at us. And in the midst of all that, we can get a little poor, poor, pitiful me going on. And when we do, we fail to take a step back and go, has God not been good to us? Has he not been faithful? The beautiful blessing of the covenant. Secondly, the breaking of the covenant. Look what happens beginning in verse 6. And the Lord said to me, God's talking to Jeremiah, proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. Hear the words of this covenant and do them. For I solemnly warned your fathers when I brought them up out of the land of Egypt. Again, God's reminding them their history. Warning them persistently. God didn't write a small clause. This isn't fine print. This isn't that guy with the really fast voice at the end of the radio ad advertising a lawyer. There is no representation to the legal services. You know, that guy. No, no, no. This is not how God works. God clearly speaks to people through his prophets. This is what will happen if you stray from me. He goes on to say, verse eight, yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but everyone walked in the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore, I brought upon them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but they did not. Now it continues, look at verse nine. Again, the Lord said to me, a conspiracy exists among the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers who refused to hear my words. They have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant I made with their fathers. Context matters. When you study the history of the kings, there are some good kings. One of the kings that ruled early in Jeremiah's life was a king named Josiah. He came to the throne as an eight-year-old boy. Now, surely no eight-year-old boy is ready to rule anything, much less eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich without getting it on the floor. But he had some wise counsel around him, And early in his life, something happened in Josiah's heart. Josiah sent some men into the temple and they found the book of the law. And they read the law before Josiah. It's actually in 2 Kings. In the book of 2 Kings, Josiah heard the word of God and was heartbroken over the rebellion of his people. And he initiated widespread reform. He burned down the idols. He shut down the temple prostitutes, both male and female, that had been brought into the temple of God. He closed down the high places. He cleaned house. And when you read it in 2 Kings, you'll find that there's just a few sentences indicating that while Josiah was making these wholesale reformations, some of the priests resisted, and a few of the idolaters stayed around. And what happens, history tells us, is that there was this great revival but as is so often the case, it was short-lived. Now, Jeremiah is prophesying long after that here, and he recognizes this language. God is saying, they've returned back what they turned from. Now, if you want to read verse 6 down through beginning in verse 10 or so, you'll notice a digression. How does it work? Like, I, I've never met with anybody who broke a covenant that just woke up one day perfectly happy and said, you know, today I'm going to become a terrible father. Today I'm going to completely and totally abandon my marriage. Today I'm going to walk away from my faith in Christ and become nominal in my faith. Nobody in Spartanburg announces that they're an idolater and quits coming to church. It's much more subtle than that. They just insert the idol of everything else in their life to keep them from the Lord's house. Foot of snowfall? We will drive to sled in it until it's Sunday, and then we struggle to get here. And we see this over and over again about people's level of commitment. And so the way idolatry works is rather subtle. This is how it happens. First, they began to ignore the voice of God. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 of chapter 11 shows this very clearly. Yet they did not obey or incline their ears. They stopped hearing me. I, I find myself as a parent doing a lot of look at me. No, 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 look at me. Now put that down, mute that, close that out, look at me. Then I explain and then I say, do you understand the words coming out of my mouth? Can you say them back to me? And then based on what I've just told you to do, have you established a sequential order that makes sense in which you should do what I've told you to do? We go through this. In fact, recently I hosted a working day at my home with our pastoral staff. We brought in a nine-foot-wide dry erase board. I almost decided to keep it in the living room for my parenting. First, I want you to do this. Second, I want you to do this. And I know it works because it's exactly how Laurel runs my life. (laughs) There is an order and a sequence to disobeying God. The first is to just begin to ignore what he says. I want you to know that if you're serious about following Jesus, then you have to ask the question, is there anything in my heart and in my life that is ignoring what he says. Because if you ignore his clear teaching about something, you're going to create an environment to begin to disobey him. And the flip side of that is true. Why do Christians love the Bible? Why do they love preaching? Why do we need small group, can't wait to get that back going? Why are e-disciples so important? Why is it that we keep coming back to the book? I'll tell you why. The minute I stop feeding my soul God's truth, the world is ready to insert its version of truth, which has become completely and totally ludicrous. In fact, we see biblically what's happening in the world. They are literally exchanging a lie for the truth. And what happens is the void of not feeding on the Word of God creates an environment where those teachings sound crazy until 10 and 15 years from now, and we begin to warm up to them. You realize nobody drifts right. You always drift left. No organization, no Christian, no Christ follower, no church drifts toward maintaining the clear teaching of God's Word. If we drift, we drift away from it. The proactive activity of not drifting is continuing to ask the question, am I ignoring anything God's Word says? They began to ignore, and then something really bad happened. They became indifferent to it. Look what the passage says, beginning in verse 8. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, But everyone walked in the stubbornness of his evil heart. This may sound familiar. Way back in Jeremiah chapter 7, several months ago, Jeremiah says it again. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts and went backward, not forward. Listen to me. If enough people get together and say something is right, and you're not grounded in God's Word, you will absolutely begin to believe that there may be some sense in it. Listen to me. It is never right to kill an unborn baby. It is never right to insert boys in girls' locker rooms. It is never right to get on Facebook and spew venom of hatred toward anybody no matter what they may believe or not believe. It is never right for me to treat anybody differently based on their background, their immigration status, or the color of their skin. I am to be kind and gracious, and in as much as it depends on me, just and fair to any person I come in contact with. It is never ever right. And as we, as a people, not as a church, just first and foremost, as members of this community, have watched our nation deal with the gaping wound of political divisiveness over issues like a virus, over issues like race, I find extremely unbiblical words and actions happening on both sides of those debates, which is why I have to raise up not a party. I have to raise up not a vaccine. I have to raise up not some economic plan or economic fair. I raise up Jesus. I keep looking to him. I listen to what his word says. I base truth of what has already been established. It's not your truth or my truth. It's his truth, and his truth is the truth, and there is no other truth and when we part from that we don't listen to other authorities more than we begin to listen to the evil within our own hearts and it leads to indifference before God and then before you know it when you become or begin to ignore and you become indifferent you know what's next you become insubordinate you stop submitting look at verse 9 verse 9 of chapter 11 again the Lord said to me a conspiracy exists. I do things wrong even when I don't set out to do them wrong. I make mistakes. There are those kinds of sins. I find myself in a situation where without thinking I say something to hurt somebody or I immediately jump to a conclusion that's wrong, that may be discriminatory. I, I do that. I find myself fumbling at times and immediately the Holy Spirit checks me and I go, you know, that, I, I didn't react right, that, that's wrong. And that's sin. We don't belittle that. I'm not in any way belittling that. But then there are times when we get so far from God, we begin to conspire against him. Jeremiah could have used any word he wanted to, but he grabs this Hebrew word that literally means to huddle together and plot to do that which is evil, a conspiracy. I've heard about a few of those lately. I don't know about you. But the greatest conspiracy in the world is what the human heart can do when I become indifferent to God's Word. I begin to conspire. Look what the Bible says, beginning in verse 9. Again, the Lord said to me, a conspiracy exists among the men of Judah and the inhabitants. And look what happened. They've turned their back to the iniquities of their forefathers. So they ignored the lessons of the past who refused to hear my words. And then, finally, they became idolaters. They became idolaters. Look, they have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel, the house of Judah, have broken my covenant that I made with their father. I've had the opportunity at times to sit with a husband whose wife has left him. Most of the time, he's a broken man. Now, Granted, marriages fall apart for all kinds of reasons, and I recognize that when the two humans are involved, there's almost always fault on both sides. But I have identified some men and some women who, who did everything they knew to do, and their spouse just walked away. And if you've ever lived through that, you don't wish it on anyone. I haven't, but as a pastor, I've been with people who have. Their heart turns to hamburger. Hamburger. This is God speaking to Jeremiah saying, I gave them everything. I went to the altar and married them as my people. They ignored me. Then they became indifferent to me. Then they were insubordinate. And now, as if that weren't enough, they've created false gods and they've began to worship them. See, often whenever you open the book of prophecy, there is this temptation to go, gosh, I hate reading this. This is a brutal God. I don't want to read this. But then when you begin to study the offense against God, you recognize that the curse matches the crime, which, of course, is how this chapter ends, the breadth of the curse. What happens, what takes place when there's no more chance For God's grace to be shown. Look what the Bible says beginning in verse 14. There is a clear, excuse me, verse 11. There's a clear and distinct change. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am bringing disaster upon them that they cannot escape. Though they cry to me, I will not listen to them Then the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will go and they will cry to gods to whom they make (laughs) offerings, but they cannot save them in their time of trouble. For your gods have become as many as your cities. God's basically saying, you can't pray to me and I'm the only living God and you can pray to all your idols, but they're not gonna save you. In fact, they were so insufficient, you kept creating them and now you have a God for every city showing the ludicrous rationale of the human heart that becomes reprobate. Look what the Bible says beginning in verse 12. Then the cities of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem will go and cry to the gods whom they make offerings, but they cannot save them. For your gods have become as many as your cities, O Judah. As many as the streets of Jerusalem are the altars that have set to shame, altars to make offerings to Baal. Therefore, do not pray for this people. That's a chilling word in God's word. Or lift up or cry prayer on their behalf, for I will not listen when they call to me in their time of trouble. What right has my beloved in my house? Notice the bride language. He's saying, what right does my soon-to-be ex-wife have in my house when she has done many vile deeds? Can even sacrificial flesh avert your doom? Can you then exalt The Lord once called you a green olive tree, beautiful with good fruit, but the roar of the great tempest, he will set fire to it, and its branches will be consumed. The Lord of hosts who planted you has decreed disaster against you because of the evil that the house of Israel and the house of Judah have done, provoking me to anger by making offerings to Baal. Let me summarize quickly. God says, once I am done, there's no recourse. There's no chance to turn around. There's no recourse. History would tell us that's true. The Babylonians do march, and Nebuchadnezzar do lays Jerusalem to waste. In fact, if you want to read how bad it went, look to the greatest lament in the Bible. Lament means to mourn and wail. Lamentations is the book of the Bible where Jeremiah is lamenting over the fall of Jerusalem. There's no recourse. Not only is there no recourse, there's not going to be any rescue. There's no knight in shining armor that's going to ride in, and there will be no restoration for these people. The last metaphor is this beautiful tree. God says, I had a tree, an olive tree that I planted. I rooted in the soil of my love. I gave it life. I watered it. It flourished. Its leaves were beautiful. And now it has become firewood, good for nothing but to be cut down. Is there a modern-day picture of this? Yeah. It's called hell. There's no recourse in hell. There are no prayers heard from hell. There's no rescue from hell. There's no restoration in hell. Nobody preaches about hell anymore. Jesus talked a lot about hell. You know why? Because he didn't want people to go there. And when you think about this, I thought about my friend Ed. I met him a few weeks ago in Maryland, Ed shared his testimony. Ed's in his 70s now. One of the most gregarious, kind-hearted Christians I've ever met. Ed grew up around the faith and had a believing grandmother. He got into first law enforcement and then the seafood industry there on the eastern shore of Maryland and made lots and lots of money. I know he did because when I met Ed, I was duck hunting on his place. He made lots of money takes lots of money to have lots of ducks. Ed shared his testimony. He said, I became a Christmas and Easter Christian, and I had two daughters and a wife that went every Sunday. But I ran my seafood business, and every afternoon I couldn't wait to get off to go drinking with my employees. I was a functioning alcoholic, had more money than I'd ever had. Everybody in the community loved me, popular, gregarious guy. He said, I loved my wife and I loved my daughters, but I was miserable. And he said, I went on an Easter and sat on the back row, and I was kind of fumbling my way through the service. And he said, the Lord spoke to me. He's Church of God, so he really speaks to him. He said, as clear as I've ever heard the voice of God, God laid it on my heart that if I didn't return and repent of my sin and trust Christ, there was not going to be another opportunity. And it scared me to death. And the next thing I knew, I was at the altar. And I stood up. I went down there, he said, a racist, a drunk, and I stood up with an overwhelming love for people. He called a meeting of all his seafood restaurant employees, and he said, I have manipulated you. I have driven you like a taskmaster. I have pitted you against one another for a dollar, and I am a changed man. Jesus has forgiven me, and I knew I wasn't going to get another shot, and he began to run his business to honor the Lord. He ended up selling it, and now he uses his life as a ministry through the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, his own church, and loves to help people. And I I watched this man share his testimony. He had probably shared hundreds of times. He cried like a baby through the whole time because he knew he got within a gnat's hair of having no recourse, no rescue, and no restoration. And he turned in time. You know, there's one more point to this sermon that's really the invitation it's not in the text. It's the beauty of Christ. You know what Paul says about this covenant that they failed? Look what the scripture says beginning in verse 13 of Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse. What curse? The one I just talked about of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Do you know what else he says? So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through the faith. Remember that olive tree analogy, Jeremiah chapter 11, verses 14, 15, 16, and 17? I can see it in my eyes. The text literally illuminates in my spirit. Do you remember what he's saying? Now read that and compare and contrast it to what Paul said about the Gentiles in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 11, now I am speaking to you Gentiles, that you and me, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Paul's saying God's done something. Such a work among the Gentiles, I want the Jews to know so they'll see his love and his mercy. He goes on to say in this same passage, But if some of the branches were broken off, Jeremiah chapter 11, I will break you off. And you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. So what God did is he said, I wanted you to be my people and you refused to be my people, fine. I'm going to go get me a people. You can't fulfill my law, fine. I'm going to send my son and curse him with your punishment and let him fulfill the law so that when you are in Christ, All the stipulations of the covenant are met. I've been digging on a Maverick City album this week. If you don't know them, look them up. And there's this one song called Hymn of the Ages that a young lady named Marianne George sings. And this is the lyric that wrecks me when I hear it. And blessed assurance and oh, what a grace. Oh, I'm prone to wonder, but you're prone to chase. You cannot understand the greatness of the grace of God without coming to terms with the gravity of your offense against God and your sin. But once you come to that understanding, the grace of Jesus becomes even more rich. You are prone to wonder, but he's prone to chase. say, Pastor, is there any hope for me? Well, just like Jeremiah, I stand before you And say, there's always hope if punishment has not yet come. And the punishment for the new believer, the punishment for the new world, is the punishment of death. If you have not died, there is hope for you to be restored. And if you've been restored, then your life should look different. I am prone to wonder, but he's prone to chase. I know what it looks like to go from blessed to broken. I want to be a part of a people who go from broken to blessed.